Hey, good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you so much for being with us this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here at Frontline. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and head over to Revelation chapter 2. And uh, while you're turning there, I want to just say, man, if you're kind of showing up today and you're like, I don't even know why I'm here. I don't know why I got dragged by a friend or a family member, but here I am. You've come at a really good time because this is a series, as you just heard, where Jesus is speaking to seven different churches. He's writing letters to them through the Apostle John. And we get to hear from Jesus himself how he feels about the church, what he thinks of the church, and how the church should function and be. So it's a great time for you to be here, especially if you're just trying to wrestle with some of the claims of Christianity and figure this stuff out. And uh, I want you to just think for a minute what comes to mind when you think of the church. What, what are some of the thoughts and, and ideas and images, feelings that come to mind when you think of the church? I think probably in Oklahoma there are two common approaches. There's a lot of approaches to the church, but two common approaches that we see in Oklahoma a lot. The first is some people approach the church, many people, as a consumer. Kind of the church is this religious uh, goods and services that are exported out to me, and so we approach the church as a consumer. And here's, here's what's crazy. If you've grown up in Oklahoma, then you don't realize how strange it is that there are churches literally on almost every corner in our state. I'll have friends come in from out of town that don't live in the Midwestern part of the country. They live on the coast, and they'll come out to hang, hang out with us. And, and, and the first thing out of their mouth almost invariably is, there are so many churches here. They're shocked. It's, it's like get, they're telling me, like, I don't know. There's gas station churches. It's like instead of gas stations, it's churches every corner, and it's mind-blowing. And that can be, on the one hand, a really benef a beneficial blessing to have so many great options to choose from. But on the other side, often it makes it very, very challenging and difficult, and it turns us into, if we're not careful, consumers. And I hear things like this all the time as a pastor. Uh, yeah, I just, you know, I wasn't really being fed at that church, so I left. Or, you know, I just, I didn't really get anything out of that worship. I didn't really enjoy the worship. And, and I just want to say, like, to that specific comment, shouldn't Jesus be the one saying that he didn't enjoy the worship? Like, you do realize the worship is not for you, right? It should be him saying, yeah, I didn't really get much out of that this morning, not you. And, and so what happens often is the way that we approach the church is as a consumer, and, and I get it. Like, I'm not trying to make fun. It is honestly difficult, isn't it, to find a good church? It is. And at some point, you have to get out your list of preferences and convictions, and you've got to end up making a decision like we all do based on what those convictions are. So I get it, but if you are not careful, your primary approach to the local church will be, what can I get out of this thing? Uh, I don't know if you've ever read this book by C.S. Lewis, The Screwtape Letters. It's an excellent book. Uh, if you haven't read it, the idea of this book is that there's an older demon named Screwtape who is mentoring and discipling a younger demon, uh, and, and that younger demon, he's basically teaching him, here's how you ruin the faith of a Christian. And in that book, he says this. He says, surely you know, this is the demon talking to the younger demon, surely you know that if a man can't be cured of church going, the next best thing is to send him all over the neighborhood looking for the church that suits him until he becomes a taster or a connoisseur of churches. The search for a suitable church makes the man a critic where the enemy, who in this book is God, wants him to be a pupil. Some people approach the church as a consumer, a connoisseur, and a critic, and that's one approach that's very common. The other approach that's really common in Oklahoma is not to approach the church as a consumer, but when you think of the church, it's to primarily be concerned about the church's credibility. 
You might think of all the harm and the damage that the institution of the church has done in the world. And so your approach to the church isn't so much as a consumer trying to get something out of it. It's how in the world do you expect to have any credibility because of all the baggage that's there. And I'll be honest, like in my own life, I grew up in the church. I was born and raised in the church. And some of the deepest, most painful memories I have come from within the church. Some of those hurtful things that people have said to me, some of the most wounding things that have ever been done to me have happened in the context of the local church. And yet, on the other hand, some of the most profoundly incredible experiences I've ever had in my life have been in the context of the church. Some of the most generous people, some of the most joyful people, some of the most incredible people I've ever met, it's been in the context of the church. And one author says this, he says, when the church is functioning at its best, there's simply no community on earth that can rival it. But when the church is functioning at its worst, there is no community on earth that can do as much damage. History itself proves the point. The church has served untold millions, as is evidenced by the number of churches, hospitals, orphanages, schools, and relief agencies that Christians have founded and operated. But the church has brutalized untold millions, as the medieval inquisition and the religious wars of the 17th century also demonstrate. So whether or not you approach the church as a consumer or as uh, someone concerned about its credibility, this is an incredible series for you to jump into because in this series, what we're going to be able to do is hear from Jesus himself, the senior pastor of his church, the founder of his church, and he's going to come to us and say, he'll, he'll say statements like this over the next seven weeks, I hate this about your church. And he'll also say things like, I love this about your church. And so what I think it's going to be able to do is give you the opportunity to look at your list of convictions and preferences and compare that with his and see if those line up. And it'll also let you look at your list of, of concerns about its credibility and, and see how Jesus is also concerned about some of those same things. So I think this is going to be a really helpful series. Now let's be honest. When uh, Pastor Sean said, if you have a Bible, open it up and go to Revelation chapter 2, some of you got a little bit of like Christian PTSD didn't you? You got a little freaked out, like, man, I don't know about this church. This may not be the right church. If I'm thinking as a consumer, this is check off the list. You just said turn to Revelation. They're going to get out the weird charts and the graphs, and they're going to start talking about left-behind books, and things are going to get crazy, and I just want to say if that's you, man, I feel your pain. I understand why you're nervous. This is a book that's often neglected or avoided by people who would say they love the Bible. It's avoided because we don't understand it. It uses uh, strong hyperbole and, and, and imagery and symbolism and all these things that are happening and it's written in a type of literature, a genre of literature that we often are not familiar with. It's uh, apocalyptic in nature and in the first century that was well-known literature. It was literature like we would have like fictional writing but today nobody reads apocalyptic literature so there's ways that John speaks in this book that are honestly just lost on us and it's really, really confusing. And if that's you, and you're like, yeah, I just don't understand the book. It weirds me out. It's creepy. It's about these weird choppers from the future and, and chips and people's, you know, iPhone watches, which we now have, you know, and you're just like in a panic mode about this book. I, I want to recommend this resource to you. This is written by a friend of mine, Dr. Matthew Emerson, who is uh, currently going through our eldership process at our Frontline Shawnee congregation. He's brilliant. It's called Between the Cross and the Throne, and this is the most helpful 79 pages on the book of Revelation I have ever read. 
And yes, I have read more than one book on the book of Revelation. I've read extensively on this and studied it. And uh, this is incredible. I can't highly recommend that book enough. It will help make sense of the book of Revelation for anyone in the room. 79 pages, it'll take you an hour to read. It's brilliant. Now, for those of you, uh, the majority of you in the room that are like, yeah, I'm just not going to do that. Thanks for the recommendation. Never going to read the book. Uh, Let me give you the 30-second summary of what's happening in this book. Uh, This is written by the Apostle John, and he's an old man writing this book, and what's so crazy is he's currently in prison for being a follower of Jesus. He's on the island of Patmos, which is across the, the way of modern-day Turkey, and there he is exiled on this island, and he's, he's worshiping on the Lord's Day. It's a Sunday when Jesus appears to him in a vision, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's what we have in this book, and he says, John, I want you to speak to these churches. Now, there's, there's a lot going on in the book, but the big idea is it's about Jesus and what he's done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in the midst of a suffering culture where Christians are being opposed and persecuted like crazy, and, and Jesus is writing to encourage them that he has overthrown their greatest enemies, Satan, sin, and death, and he is going to uh, return in victory and bring the new heavens and the new earth. That's what this book is all about. We're not going to look at the rest of the book. We're just going to focus on chapter 2 and 3 because in chapter 2 and 3, what he does is Jesus speaks to John and he says, I want you to write to seven different churches. These are real churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, the, The closest church was Ephesus, so we start with Ephesus. And then if you draw a circle around the seven churches, it makes a complete circle. And so it's as if a traveler would go from Ephesus to the next church to the next, to the next. That's what is happening. These are real churches and real cities, but it's not just for them. It's also for the church throughout history. It's what you'll see in this is really true of every church and every age. So this is a really, really helpful book, and we're going to start with the letter to the Ephesians, to the church at Ephesus. Uh, the, The church at Ephesus was in a strategic city. It was a really, really important city in the first century. It was, it was the Roman province of the entire uh, uh, region of Asia, and it had a really important temple there. It's the Temple of Artemis, right, or the Temple of Diana, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And this was a, a strategic port city that people would do a lot of trading in, and there was a lot of cultural uh, stuff happening that would go out into the rest of the Roman Empire. And Paul, on one of his missionary journeys, the Apostle Paul, he spends the majority of his time, actually more time in the city than anywhere else that we have record of in the New Testament, and he plants this church, the Church of Ephesus, and it's about 40 years old, so this is now the oldest church that we'll interact with over the next seven weeks. It's been around longer than any other church, and, 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 and it's a, honestly, if I could pick one church, one letter that most describes what I think Frontline needs to hear, it would be the church of Ephesus. What Jesus is going to tell them, what I think if he were to come to our church and speak to us this morning, he would probably say something very, very similar to us as well. So that's where we're headed. We're going to start with this church. And I think it's going to answer one of the questions that a lot of us ask if you've been a Christian for any length of time, which is how do I, how do I maintain love for Jesus and passion for Jesus over the long haul? How do I do that? So let's jump in. Jesus is going to start with a commendation. Jesus starts by commending this church in four specific ways. The first way he wants to write to them and say, hey, I just want to commend you is their perseverance. Their perseverance. In verse 2, here's what it says. 
I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. Go to verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. So this church is about 40 years old, as we just said, and here's what's happening in the culture around it. The Roman Empire is pressing on this church. In fact, they're pressing on all kinds of Christians, and they're trying to snuff out the movement of Christianity at this moment. And we know that the, the, the Caesar of their day in the first century at this moment in history was a, was a man that hated Christianity and hated Jesus and wanted to snuff out the movement as much as possible. He was arresting Christians. He was physically persecuting Christians. He was, he was throwing them in jail, throwing them in exile. He was uh, putting a lot of them to death. In fact, at one point, he was taking Christians and dipping them in tar and then sticking them on stakes and lighting them on fire. And he'd throw these house parties and he'd have human torches of burning Christians just to light the path to his house parties. This was a really painful time to be a Christian and, and you would experience some sort of loss, some sort of persecution, some sort of suffering. And what Jesus writes to this church is, hey, I just I want to commend you because of your perseverance. In the face of opposition, culture is pushing back on you and you've, you've remained faithful. You have not grown weary for my namesake. Good job on that. He commends them for their perseverance. The second thing he does is he commends them for their hard work. Commends them for their hard work. Look at verse 2. It says, I know your works, your toil. That word toil in the Greek literally means to toil to the point of exhaustion. Jesus is saying, man, I'm watching you as a church, and, and I intimately know what's happening in your church, and you're a hardworking church. They could have been like, yeah, well, we're the church at Ephesus, and we're kind of a big deal, and we don't need to do anything. But instead, here they are. They're working hard, and they're, they're toiling to the point of exhaustion. What that meant was they were, they were multiplying community groups like crazy, and, and they were serving in the kids' ministry, in the 9 a.m. service, can you believe it? And like doing it every week, and they were, they were just, you know, whatever they had, they were giving away and trying to, trying to advance the kingdom of God in their city, pushing back darkness like crazy. Jesus writes to him, and he says, you're a hardworking church. Good job. I commend you for that. The third thing he says is, you're a holy church. He commends them for their holiness. He commends them for their holiness. And the, the city of Ephesus was a very difficult place to be a Christian. You had, like I said, the temple of Artemis there, and there was temple prostitution like crazy, and, and sexual immorality was just rampant in the city of Ephesus. In fact, you can go even to this day and walk among the ruins of, of Ephesus in this region, and you can find signs that would tell sailors as they would pull up to the, the docks and get off their boat, it would tell sailors where the nearest brothels were. You can still see those signs, like here's the nearest place to go get a prostitute. And this was a city where um, the idea of living as, as a Christian underneath the lordship of Jesus was so countercultural to what the city of Ephesus was all about that it was easy to kind of capitulate to culture and look more like them than like Christians. And yet Jesus says, you're a holy church. In verse 2 he says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. You can't bear with those who are evil. Like you, you, it, it bothers you. The evil of your, of your city, it actually bothers you. And then he says this in, in verse 6. He says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That's very like uh, culturally friendly and appropriate language today, right? Jesus saying, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Not, not them, but their works. I do too, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you for that. I actually commend you for your holiness. And then the fourth thing he does is he commends them for their doctrine. Look at the second half of verse 2. 
It says, you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. This is big, like Paul in Acts 20, uh, 20 uh, verse 28, he actually writes to, he's there with the Ephesian elders, and he says, brothers, you've got to be careful as pastors of this church because there's coming a day where false teachers and false prophets are going to rise up in your midst, and they're going to lead people astray, and so what I want you to do is be on guard. They took that command very seriously. This was a church that had great theology, had really, really sound, good doctrine, and anytime a teacher would come to them, they were always assessing the teacher's words with the authority of Scripture and making sure, does this line up? In fact, one of the church fathers, a, a man by the name of Ignatius, which pregnant ladies out there, just consider that as an option, Ignatius, it's pretty strong. Um, the church father, Ignatius, he, he actually writes to this church a few years after John writes to them, and here's what he says to the Ephesian church. He says, you all are living according to truth, and no heresy has a home among you. Indeed, you do not so much as listen to anyone if they speak of anything except concerning Jesus Christ and truth. This was an incredible church. Jesus writes to them, and he commends them for their doctrine, for their holiness, for their, the ways that they're hardworking, for their perseverance. So I just want you to put yourself in their shoes for just a minute. Imagine it's a Sunday morning and we're gathered together in Ephesus as a church. One of the pastors, he stands up and he says, hey, we've got some really fun, exciting things happening today. We, we have a letter from the Apostle John. And everybody in the church is like, oh, we love John. That's great. John has written us a letter. And the pastor's like, actually, it's a, it's a letter from Jesus through the Apostle John. Even better, we love Jesus more than we love John, you know? And so you're just like, well, you're on the edge of your seat. I can't wait to hear what Jesus has to say to our church. And it just goes down the list. Man, I want to commend you because you're, you're a persevering church. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. That's what we, we, try, we try to be. I want to commend you because you are a, you're a hardworking church. By, by grace, by grace, we're a hardworking church. I want to commend you because you're a holy church. You, you have worked that in our hearts, God. We're, we're really thankful for that. And on and on it goes down the list. And then you hear these words. But there's one thing I don't love about your church. In fact, it's actually more strong. It's, there's something I have against your church. What could that be? Well, that leads us to the complaint that Jesus has. He has a complaint about the church at Ephesus. Go to verse four. Here's all the things that I love about you, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. And that's jarring, isn't it? Hey, you're amazing on so many levels. You've got perseverance, you've got holiness, you've got profound doctrine, you're a hardworking church, but you know what? At some point along your trajectory, you stopped realizing that your greatest calling was not for me in the world, but to me in a love relationship. You've abandoned your love at first. In other words, it's not just that your, your love has grown cold, it's that you've abandoned your love. You've rejected it. You've walked away. You had a type of love for me early on in your faith, and you've abandoned that love as a church. And you've got all these other marks of a good church, but this is a serious deal. In fact, that word abandon, it's a, it's a harsh, strong word. This is what I have against you, he says. This is the thing I hate about your church. You've abandoned the love that you had for me at first. This language of abandonment is something that God uses throughout the Old Testament to talk about his people and his relationship to them. Oftentimes, God is pictured as this 
husband who he, he doesn't want you to see him as a master that's giving orders and commanding you to be some ministry widget and just crank out work for him. He's saying the way that I want to relate to you and the way I want you to relate to me is with a love relationship. And, and often he talks about the church or his people as being a bride who is unfaithful and abandons him and runs away. In fact, this is language that makes us think of Jeremiah 2, where in verse 2, God says this. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and a land not sown. Then he goes on to say this. You know this. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. They've abandoned me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is the issue that Jesus takes with his church. And I just wonder, like, if he were to come to Frontline and write to us and speak to us, what would Jesus say? Would he say, man, I, I see your good theology. It's, it's, it's great. You've got sound doctrine. I commend you for that. You're a hardworking people. Like you, you, you stay connected to the life of community. You're trying to engage the mission of God and push back darkness in our city Monday through Saturday. You, 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 you work hard at, at persevering in the face of cultural opposition and as things get more crazy in our culture, you're doing really, really good to, to stay faithful to me. There's all these things I want to commend to you, but here's the thing that I don't love. Here's the thing I actually have against you. You've abandoned the type of love you had for me at first. And this isn't Jesus saying like, well, it's, you know, four out of five's not bad, so just keep, keep on going. I can live with that. What he actually goes on to say is if you don't repent, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now we know from Revelation chapter 1 at the very end in verse 20 that a lampstand is a church. So when you hear that word lampstand, you've got to realize he's talking about a church. He says that in chapter 1. And so what he's saying is, hey, you've got all this great stuff. There's all these ways that I could commend your church. But here's what I have against you. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. And if you don't repent of that and return back to this pure and simple devotion to Jesus, this love for Jesus, I'm actually going to remove your church. I'm going to take away your church. Some of you, and this rings true, doesn't it? There was a day in your life where you just had vibrancy and passion for Jesus. You're willing to do whatever. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm yours, Lord. Do whatever you want to do with me. And you've grown older and more cynical and more embittered. And you know this is you when you meet someone who doesn't have great theology and doesn't really know much of their Bible. Maybe they're a brand new Christian, but they're so passionate and excited and filled with vibrancy. And in, in the back of your mind or deep in your heart somewhere, you, you think things like, oh, you just wait. You just wait. You just keep following Jesus longer, and you'll be old and bitter like me too, right? You'll lose your joy. You won't be so happy. And you find yourself getting annoyed with people who just have this life and this vibrancy and this passion for Jesus, even if they don't know much. That's how you know that You've not just started to drift, but you maybe even are walking away, abandoning your love. So this leads to the question that I hope you're asking. This leads to the question like, how, how do we maintain passion and love for Jesus over the long haul? How do we do that? Well, there's a lot of things that we want to point to and say, well, maybe if we just had these things in place, maybe if our church could experience these other elements, then we would maintain passion and love for Jesus. But I want you to consider what this church, the church at Ephesus, had going for them. 
the first thing that people point to is like, well, you know, if, if we just had better leaders, if we had incredible leaders, then my, my love for Jesus would be there. It would be like, if, if, if Andrew wasn't such a bad preacher, then my heart would be stirred more for the gospel. And if the music was better, and like, we just want to point to the leadership. If we had better leaders, my heart would be more alive for Jesus. What did this church have for leadership? Well, the Apostle Paul planted it. It's kind of a big deal. He's kind of an awesome church planter, right? Um, Priscilla and Aquila, have you ever heard of them? They're also a big deal. They're like a husband-wife leadership team. They were on the core team of this church plant. Timothy, there's some books of the Bible with his name on it. He, he's also a big deal. He pastored this church. And then if you're like, well, Timothy, I don't know. The Apostle John in the later years of his life was a, was a pastor and an elder in this church, the church at Ephesus. So we want to point to incredible leadership. That's what we need to maintain passion. Man, I think our pastors are some of the best people I've ever had the privilege of working with. They're amazing. None of us hold a candle to Timothy. None of us hold a candle to the Apostle John, the Apostle Paul. Incredible leadership isn't enough to maintain passion and love for Jesus. Some of you are like, yeah, but if we had revival, like if, if the Holy Spirit was poured out in power and signs and wonders and people quit worshiping with their hands in their pockets, and by the way, side note, you should also stop worshiping with your hands in your pockets. That's a free one. Um, but if, if the church was more passionate and God was at work and moving in powerful ways, then our heart would stay connected to Jesus. Man, this church, the church at Ephesus, was birthed, guess what, out of a, a massively powerful move of the Holy Spirit. A powerful revival was poured out in Acts 19. So powerful that it says this in Acts 19, that God was doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul. Not just miracles. Miracles are already amazing. Extraordinary miracles. You're like, what could that be? It was his handkerchief that was healing people. That's bizarre, right? You want to talk about power of God at work where... Paul's like, yeah, I'm, I'm too busy. I can't make it. I'm working on a First and Second Timothy letter right now, but uh, take my handkerchief, and it'll, it's good for like 12 healings and four, uh, you know, people getting ca- demons cast out. So it's like, they, you know, touch someone with a hanger, boom! And, the, you know, a demon comes out of it like, oh my gosh, that's a powerful move of God. That's how this church was birthed. And 40 years in, their love has grown cold. Maybe we look at missional success, and, and you just got to remember that this church, by the time Paul was done doing ministry in Ephesus, raising up leaders, says in Acts 19 that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All of Asia. Some, some of us point to deep theology. You know what we need? If we just had better doctrine at a, as a church, if we could just root ourselves and, and read better theology and grow intellectually, then our passion would be stirred. Man, that's important, and that's good, and that's right, but it's not enough. You know why? Guess what letter was written to this church? Ephesians. Have you heard of it? It's in the Bible. Have you ever read a book with better theology than Ephesians? Some of you like uber Bible nerds like Romans. Okay, that's fine. I get it. But Ephesians is, is some of the best, most rich theology you've ever read in your life. And here's my point, guys. We always want to blame shift. The reason my heart is hard, the reason my love for Jesus isn't burning bright, the reason I've drifted in my, my, my passionate love that I once had is it's because of all these reasons outside of me. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 it, like, you have all this great stuff going for you. Here's what I have against you. So how do we maintain passion and love for Jesus? What do we do if you wake up one day and you realize, I, my heart is hard, my love has grown cold, and you look back on your life and you remember a time when Jesus was all you wanted, and now you're satisfied with Netflix? 
You're satisfied with the money that you have, the home that you have, your life as it is, and you're just kind of doing the thing. Yeah, I'm going to go to church, and yeah, I'll, you know, maybe be in a community group, and, but just this love that you have for Jesus, it's not burning bright. You've actually abandoned the love that you had at first. What do you do if that's you? Well, here's what Jesus says to this church. He gives them a charge. Look at verse five. What do you do if your heart has grown cold and your love has gone away? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, he says. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Verse seven, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus issues three invitations to every single person. And by the way, some of you are like, my heart isn't burning cold. My heart is, my heart is in love with Jesus. That's wonderful. But remember, he's writing to the whole church. So even if your heart is, like you're, you, there's this responsibility that you have for the people in this church. It's not just my responsibility as one of the pastors here. If you are part of this church, it's your responsibility to stir up love and good works for Jesus. That's what we're doing together. So how do we do this? What do we do? Well, the first thing we do is we remember. We remember, and I just want to remind you, like the Ephesian church would have heard this, and their mind probably would have gone to Ephesians chapter 2 where Paul says things like, hey, don't you remember that you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked do you remember what it was like to be dead in sin do you remember what it was like to be a child of wrath do you remember what it was like to to have the weight and guilt of your shame and sin weighing you down so heavily where you you, you only felt the displeasure of God do you remember that do you remember making mistakes and choices that you wish you could undo and and you wish you had a new life and you wish you had a, a new page and a new story and a new name do you remember the weight of all of those things? Do you remember feeling stuck and addicted and isolated and you don't even know what to do and you can't get out of it? He's saying, remember. And then, and then he's saying, do you remember what it was like when for the, the very first time the gospel finally made sense to your heart? The good news that Jesus loves you as you are and while you were dead in your sin, he actually made you alive together with Jesus and he forgives you and he lived the life that you couldn't live and he died the death that you deserve to die and he gives you a new identity and a new name he calls you a son or a daughter and he he fills you with the spirit and he changes the course of your destiny like do you remember what that felt like for the first time I think one of the reasons why we lose passion for Jesus is because we just forget who we were I wasn't that bad you were a child of wrath I wasn't that bad. You were dead in your sins. Well, what he did wasn't that much. He shed his blood for you because he couldn't stand the thought of not having you with him. He gave his life. He gave his Holy Spirit. Man, he has done so much. Remember, he's saying, remember from where you have fallen. You were, you, you were loving me a certain way and you've fallen. Remember what it was like when I first met you and you first were like, yeah, Jesus, I'm all in. Whatever you want for my life, you're the only thing I care about. I don't care if I ever watch another show on TV. I don't care if I'm poor. I don't care if I have a nice place to live. I don't care if I've got a family. I just, I want you above everything else. Remember where you were. Second invitation he gives them is to repent. 
It's to repent. If you wake up today and your heart is hard, the solution to your hard-heartedness and your lack of love for Jesus isn't to just complain about it. Some of us are really good. Man, I've, we're really good at this. I feel so far from God. He feels like a million miles away. Well, what do you do when that happens? What Jesus says is he says, I want you to repent. That word repent sounds harsh, doesn't it? It sounds mean. Like we picture the guy at the street corner with a bullhorn yelling, repent. That's not what God is doing here. What he's doing through the grace of Jesus is this word metanoia. It means repentance. It's, it's when you are going one way and to metanoia is to turn around and go a different way right? And so what he's saying is, you've been running for me. You've been walking away from me. You've been ignoring me. You've abandoned the love that you had at first. What do you do? You just turn around. Some of you today, the most profound thing you could do for your heart is to turn back around and face Jesus face to face. You've been running, and he's, he's just, he's there when you turn. Repent. Isn't this crazy that Jesus actually misses the way that you used to love him? And he wants you to stop doing all the things that you're doing to rob you of that type of love and to just come back to him again. Jesus misses you. And then the final invitation is to return. It's to return. Specifically, he says, I want you to repent and return to me. Do the works that you did at first. What are some of the things that you did at first when you fell in love with Jesus? If you're a follower of Jesus in the room, what were some of the things that you did? Maybe you, you like actually got up early and read your Bible. You're like, I just want to know. I, know. I, don't, I don't know what this is about. I want to read. I want to I hear from God. Or maybe you're like, I just got to tell people about Jesus because you will never believe what he did for me. You'll never believe he, he gave me a new heart. Man, what, what did you do at first when you first became a Christian? Maybe you're spending time in prayer. Maybe you did what I did. Like you'd put on like, like a, a a great worship album. I think at that time it was like, you know, you were relying on K-Love, which is um, hit or miss would be a compliment about K-Love. And, uh, and so you're like, you're relying on that or like a CD that you got at Mardell. And I would drive in my car, I'd be singing these songs and just like pouring my heart out to God in these worship songs. And, and then I, I, I realize I'm at a stoplight and the person next to me is just like staring at me awkwardly, you know, and I'm like tears down my, f- and then you get out your cell phone, pretend that you've just been talking to someone on the phone. Did anyone, was I the only one that did that? Okay, so I was the only one that did that, but, but what, what did you do at first when Jesus rescued you? How did you love him, and, and what was the passion like? And what he's saying is, I want you to remember, and I want you to repent, turn back to me, and just return to the works that you used to do. That's his invitation to this church. That's his invitation to our church.